Well, let's say a little prayer before you start, okay? Let's do that. Let's say let's say a little prayer. You go. Yeah, yeah. Let Let's ask Almighty God first of all to continue to bless you, Mike, and and bless Susie, who really is your companion, you know, in getting these things done, and she's so dedicated to it. And bless me, you know, uh, that uh, I may be an instrument of God's grace, that all of us may be an instrument of God's grace in this recording that we're going to be, this interview that we're about to to do, that somehow fire up our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our whole being to do God's will in ways far beyond our wildest imaginings. Mm. Amen. I like that. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Father. With that, um, let us begin. My name is Mike Matusi. I'm the founder of Contemporary Spirituality. Our mission, among others, is to connect wisdom teachers with sincere seekers. This man today needs no introduction. We were lucky enough to get him to come to Kansas City. Um, Took a couple tries because he had a medical issue that came up, but he came here a couple years ago, gave a weekend retreat at uh, St. Charles Parish in uh, Gladstone, and uh, we had a great time at the retreat and a couple dinners afterwards, and uh, we knew each other before some, and we've stayed in touch some since. So let me just read uh, some biographical information uh, on Father Carl Arico because it's just very well written, and can't really do better than this. Father Carl Arico is a founding member of Contemplative Outreach Limited and a member of the Gift Committee, which is entrusted with works of Father Thomas Keating. He is an editor and contributor of the Contemplative Life Program, The Heartfulness, The Gift of Life, God is Love, and the newly released that We May Be One series. He is well known and beloved for his gift of transmitting teachings on the spiritual journey in a down-to-earth practical, compassionate, and sometimes humorous manner. I agree with all of that. And then just a snippet from another bio, uh, Father Carl um, has practiced centering prayer since 1975 and taught the prayer since 1978, known for his humor and ability to bridge the gap between the clergy and laity, traveled extensively in the U.S. and internationally, to present workshops and direct retreats for both priests and lay people. You can get on YouTube, and many of uh, Father Carl's retreats are there. Co-author of the book, Living Our Priesthood Today, that you did in conjunction with Father Basil Pennington, another architect of the Centering Prayer, and the author of Taste of Silence, which I have read, a great book, a guide to the fundamentals of Centering Prayer. With that, Father Carl, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. (laughs) <laughs> that's dangerous you know when you ask a question so so broadly and everything else let me put yeah. it this way i'm a uh, human being who follows christ and happens to wear the mantle of priesthood uh, and the lord works on me on all those three levels uh, yeah. t- dealing with my humanity uh, dealing with my following of him and being uh, his minister in the, this world, uh, you know, spreading spreading the good news uh, in yeah. in the 
in the real time, I was born in New York City, uh, 1934, uh, uh, moved to New Jersey, uh, raised in uh, Newark, uh, New Jersey, uh, my mom and dad and I and my brother and sister uh, formed the family that's called the Ericos. And um, uh, I just grew up as a normal kid in the Valesburg section of Newark. Um, and uh, well, what can I say after that? Uh, I already gave you the ending before the beginning. <laughs> yeah. If you would not have become a priest, what would you have done for a living? <laughs> well, I worked as a kid uh, as in a butcher shop around the corner, and I really enjoyed being a butcher and uh, really enjoyed dealing with customers and uh, learned a lot of the interaction that goes on when you're trying to be of service to people. And... Mm -hmm. uh, I I uh, I don't know I, the, the reality of that, but I often uh, love that whole, almost like parish experience, you know, of uh, waiting on on people and listening to their stories, and also to getting used to the different personalities that come into the shop. Uh, so it was a nice foundation. I did that when I was uh, part time when I was in uh, high school. Yeah. What attracted you to the priesthood? When, at what point did you start thinking, maybe I want to do this? Maybe I want to. Well, there was a wonderful, yeah, there was a wonderful parish priest by the name of Father Robert Egan, a tall, strapping, wonderful Irish guy. And uh, uh, when I went to Catholic school at Sacred Heart Billsburg, you know, he was kind of like the the champion of. Uh, a lot of us uh, guys, and uh, we looked up to, uh, to him. I liked him very, very much in this sense, actually, that he uh, he made sure that the the um, the marginal students, if you would, um, were well taken care of and treated properly. Uh, back in the 40s, the parish was all Irish, and. Um, and wonderful Irish people, but but there was a tendency of sort of like uh, those that were not Irish were kind of second class citizens, and and um, when the Father Egan made sure that people knew that that was unacceptable, and I came to love him only that, uh, not only in that way, but his way. He was a, a people's priest, and uh, in fact, when I became a priest. Uh, he was my uh, master of ceremonies, which meant that he oversaw the celebration of my first mass. Uh, and that usually was an honor that you gave to the priest that uh, inspired you, you know, to become a priest. Mm. And you are coming up on your 60th year now as a priest, true? Uh-huh, just celebrated, just celebrated. Well, I didn't celebrate it with the pandemic. There was no celebration, but yeah, the... Uh, yeah, May 28th, uh, 1960, 60 years, mm -hmm. uh, 60 years a priest, yeah. How many are left that you graduated with? Well, we were 29. Uh, there, um, I would say a, a third are dead, have died, maybe even more than that. 
uh, I, I would say uh, the other third were, were married, got were left and went, got married, and then uh, right now uh, there's about uh, six of us are still alive mm. uh, and, and uh, practicing our, our our calling of being a priest uh, um, formally. Yes. Not soon after you got started in the 60s, Vatican II started. What was your position on Vatican II? For it, against it, not sure? Oh, it was a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. I remember I was involved at that time in the 60s. I was in a little parish called Little Flower Berkeley Heights. Well, it wasn't that little. But the uh, very much young families, uh, Berkeley Heights was invited, uh, was uh, located uh, next to Murray Hill, which was where Bell Labs was. And Bell Labs was the big place that, you know, the, the top people came to, you know, in the whole experimental field and in uh, communication and all sorts of things. And so many of those people were members of the parish. And uh, so we had this Christian family movement where we got together um, every two weeks, so like seven or eight couples and with discussion and so on. And uh, as the um, different documents were coming out of Vatican, uh, Vatican Council, uh, this group would uh, discuss the preliminary summaries that were received along with the set format that was part of the uh, discussion guide and it was just alive and wonderful and hopeful and uh, it was just a, it was Camelot it was really so, a wonderful experience in the 60s and I was so happy that I was part uh, could be part of that as it was sort of like germinating and bubbling and what have you yeah it was wonderful now you told me once that when you went in so you were started in seminary in 1954. There was an atmosphere then of respect and responsibility. Uh, tell us more about that. Respect and responsibility was so important. I know among the, in the seminary at that time, um, it was a... Um, I think when I mentioned that to you, though, Mike, it was in the context, really, of the call, the atmosphere in the world around us uh, yeah. in the in the fifties was very much. There was a respect for authority, and and there was a deeper sense of responsibility that were there. And people in authority uh, knew they lived up to a standard, and people who were in authority realized there was responsibility for what they what they did. And so to become, you know, uh, a priest at that particular time had a very powerful and wonderful meaning, meaning to humbling also. And so the call to priesthood was so much different than the call to priesthood uh, uh, today. Um, so it was a whole different How so? atmosphere. In you. How so? Well, I think, well, because we, most of us came, you know, we went to college, you know, and then we, uh, in college, we realized we wanted to be priests. And then we went into this six-year program of preparing for priesthood. And 
And we did not have at that the same uh, experience of many of the vocations of people today um, in the sense of uh, very few, I think, have just gone right down the line. They went to school, then they went to the seminary, and then they got ordained. Um, there are still that percentage, but there's also a lot that came in after they had a career in the uh, in the business world and everything, and and so their attitude is uh, is uh, is a little more, I, I would say, you know, um, mature because they've experienced the hard knocks of what it means to make a living. I guess. Yeah, let's talk about your path because. Uh, you were ordained a diocesan priest, and I think you said you started out in the parish, um, but eventually you got involved with Thomas Keating and Centering Prayer. Uh, take us through that journey, because that was fairly atypical back then for, I think, a parish diocesan priest. Yes, it was. Um, well, I got ordained in 1960. I was assigned to this parish, in which I was the associate pastor there for nine years, a little flower, Berkeley Heights. Uh, during that time, I was invited to teach in a local Catholic, all-girls Catholic high school, um, a Union Catholic in Scotch Plains. So I had my parish obligations, but I also was going every afternoon uh, for the last two <laughs> classes of the afternoon to, uh, to teach uh, religion. But it was a wonderful experience and a wonderful experience in the sense of watching young people grow up. And um, then then I then when I had finished that, you know, I became a chaplain to the brothers of Union Catholic High School um, for uh, two years. But uh, during that time, I began a full time ministry in marriage and family. So. From 1960 to 69, it was the parish, uh, uh, and then uh, from 70 to 70 um, to 80 was full-time ministry of marriage and family work. And uh, then um, what happened was that the, in 1980, I became priest personnel director for 800 priests. Uh, of the archdiocese, a very large archdiocese. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that, um, uh, especially before that even, in the middle of my work and family life in 1975, I was taught Centering Prayer by Father William Manager uh, yeah. on a retreat up at Spencer. And as a result of that, a group of us priests began to make sure we um, to let people know the beautiful gift that Centering Prayer was. Uh, this was 1970s. As, and then in 78, Father Thomas Keating uh, had a, uh, he was the abbot there at Spencer. Uh, he decided to have a training program for those people who were teaching Centering Prayer. Uh, there was nothing formal in the way we were taught. We just listened to Father Manager's tapes that he had made and kind of used that as a framework of our workshops. But in 1978, he decided to bring the teachers together um, uh, and they were not all priests. There were lay people so involved to, and uh, to the Spencer, and it was about 12 of us and he had a one week program from Monday to Friday 
to go through the essentials and to try to set up a format for teaching Centering Prayer, formal format. And um, at the end of it, you know, Father Thomas Keating asked us, uh, he didn't teach the class, he had one of the uh, monks teach it, for a critique. Now, I'm an ENTJ um, on my Myers-Briggs, and he asked, you ask an ENTJ for a for a uh, critique, you get a critique. So he got seven yeah. pages, pluses, minuses, and uh, suggestions for improvement. And that's when our relationship, even though I knew him from afar, that's when our relationship clicked, 1978. And I'm going to move you forward to 1983, because I love this story about the first retreat. Uh, tell us about that, and is this fair to say this is among, if not the most profound thing Thomas Keating ever said to you? <laughs> Well, you know, he, uh, during the course of 78 to 1983, uh, he resigned as uh, abbot at Spencer and went out to live at Snowmass. And um, uh, during that time, uh, he was noticing how Centering Prayer was was growing. And he decided he'd like to have a 15-day silent retreat uh, with uh, people who were involved with teaching Centering Prayer. And so he invited he invited um, the number of us to go. Uh, he invited Gail Fitzpatrick Hoffler uh, to go, uh, David Fernet, um, Father William Sheehan, Bill Sheehan, um, Mary Murzowski, um, and myself, along with uh, seven other people to go on this this retreat, which ended up being kind of the the, the 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 what can I say the nucleus of what and by the way uh, Pat Johnson uh, was serving the retreat she was living in community at this place at Lama oh which was dedicated to uh, inner spirituality and Father Thomas wanted to use these grounds because he thought it, thought it'd be a better idea to uh, have this experience in a uh, unfamiliar setting if you would. And it was certainly unfamiliar because we we slept on the on the ground uh, in knapsacks uh, in our private little irk sections and uh, uh, out in the woods for taking care of the needs of nature, kerosene lamps, and so on. So it was uh, really a down to earth experience. But that was the the really the root of what people know now as a a centering prayer intensive retreat where Thomas, instead of, we didn't have videos of him giving his talks, but he gave the talks. So in the course of this, there was um, uh, three periods of centering prayer uh, three times a day, plus his concerts, his uh, conferences, and uh, Eucharist. And uh, and so when I went, you know, uh, Everybody in the group prayed uh, on the floor, you know, so I got myself ready, you know, to pray on the floor like everybody else a few months before starting to do that. And uh, I wasn't able to do the lotus position, but there is a little prayer bench that you can rest your butt on, you know, and, and, and be praying on the floor. Well, after three days, 
my legs were killing me. Oh, God, I was in pain. But I wasn't going to give up because everybody else was on the floor praying. Mm -hmm. And so I went in to see Father Thomas, and this is one of the most profound things he said to me. Thank you for reminding me, Mike. Yeah. That he said, I said to him, Father Thomas, my legs are killing me. I said, I, I'm trying to keep this position on the floor, and and and, and I can't do it anymore. And he says, Well, sit on a chair. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so I sit on a chair. My goodness, no one else is sitting on the chair. He says, well, sit on a chair. He says, it'll be fine. So I next the next section section or session of centering prayer, I uh, humbly, you know, uh, remove my little butt kneeler, if you would, or and put the chair up, just a regular chair, and sat in it. Humiliated, unbelievably humiliated. I couldn't do it. Well, the next time we came for centering prayer, four other chairs appeared. The next time, six <laughs> other chairs appeared. And not everybody, but a, a good percentage finally got went to the chairs. And the big lesson he taught me was be yourself. Yes. Well, not only did, were you, did you have the courage to be yourself, you became the trendsetter, it sounds like, in that little arrangement well it Next turned year. out actually that what i was experiencing was being experienced by other people yeah and i would say this that i've like thomas merton in a certain sense not that i am a thomas merton but in the sense that when you get in touch with your own reality and how you're dealing with your relationship with god and if you share it with others uh, more times than not, they are experiencing the same thing. They're experiencing the same thing because human nature is human nature. Mm. I remember I like once. Uh, I remember one. I remember once. Uh, Mike, I was. Uh, I had a substitute for Father Thomas. This was in the middle nineties um, at the University of Notre Dame, and um, uh, the. Um, of course, uh, in, uh, people found out about the substitution after they came to this, uh, this, uh, w these workshops. There were five of them, and all of a sudden they're waiting for Father Thomas Keating and Father Carlo Rico appears, you know, on on centering prayer. And I know, I said to myself, and even the people invited me said, "Well, don't be disappointed that after they do the first talk, give the first talk, they'll go to one of the other four workshops because." They're really looking for Father Thomas. Well, it turned out actually that I ended up having more people the second session, you know. Uh -huh. And I I remember someone saying to me um, uh, near the end, the person was very astute. They came up to me and said to me, you know, uh, Father Carl, keep this in mind, you know, uh, revere your teacher, but be yourself. Ah, same message. Nice. Same, Very same message. Yep. Tell us about your movement into contemplative outreach. Uh, this bio, I assume the timeline's correct, says the very next year after the 83 retreat in 84, you uh, uh, were part of founding Contemplative Outreach Limited. Tell us about that. Cause I think your, your kind of full-time work then continued with that group going forward, didn't it? 
or not? Uh, no, I was still at that time a priest personnel director in 1984 for the Archdiocese of Newark for 800 priests dealing with their personnel uh, movement, you know, and and uh, education. Uh, the uh, 1984, Father Thomas and a uh, an Ed Bettner and a Gus Reinecker and Gail Fitzpatrick Hoppler and members of uh, the Archdiocese of New York um, met together um, in Gus Reinecker's apartment in Manhattan, uh, where a discussion was taking place with forming contemplative outreach. And Contemplative Outreach was named uh, by Ed Bentner, who saw a need, really, that the contemplative movement uh, have an outreach to it. And uh, as a result of those meetings at that apartment, and later on in meetings at the um, chapel on Columbia University in the room that was dedicated to Thomas Merton's writings, um, the contemplative outreach began to form with Father Keating at all the meetings and Mary, Mary Mrazowski and uh, a few other people. Um, and that was the laying of the foundation of Contemplative Outreach Limited, which uh, really blossomed into um, the uh, Contemplative Outreach organism, which is now still thriving. Um, yeah. So it, that that was the beginning the beginning uh, of of it all. Yeah, and to give the the listeners who may not uh, have the, have the numbers handy, I don't even know if you have the numbers handy, but I mean, contemplative outreach now have lo- local chapters in I don't know how many cities and how many countries and so forth, but its scope is certainly uh, international, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, Thomas Keating has passed. If um, what is the future of contemplative outreach? And I think you and Gail and some of the early people have officially retired from the board. Is that correct, uh, Carl? Oh yes, yes, yes. We have. Um, What's the, the uh, well, here's here's how I always envisioned it. You know, um, and listening to Thomas talk, talking and so on. Um, I think Thomas, in a certain sense, was wise in uh, using uh, the monastic tradition um, in in its organizing it in order to begin it to grow with with chapters and boards and so on like that. It's it was not a corporate image at all. It was based on how monastic governance took place. Um, but the the interesting thing here was I always felt that Thomas was like Jesus Christ. Uh, hold on now, I'm not saying he was. Yeah, um, I understand. But he, Jesus Christ, um, named Peter, but he named he named twelve apostles mm-hmm. to spread the word. So his vision has always been. There was no one to replace Thomas Keating, nor could there be, but that the message would be spread by the 12 apostles, and then you know further in Scripture, the 72 disciples. So right now, in a certain sense, it's it's the um, 
it, it's c- carried on by people who have been touched by his message and his inspiration in a in a um, almost like a an apostolic like um, formula, if you would, of um, of very little structure. Well, there really rarely wasn't much, but a lot of um, oh sparkles of light, uh, rays of light throughout the world, you know, uh, radiating the the message of contemplative outreach, which is really to consent to God's presence and action in our lives by by the method of centering prayer, which uh, in a certain sense packages our desire to let God do whatever God needs to do in our lives and get out of the way. Yeah. It just might be a good time for a side note um, on the profound impact you've had on my life, even though it at the time may have seemed very subtle to you. But I think I first met you at uh, a Circle of Friends event. Similarly, Thomas was maybe going to present if he felt able. He didn't. You took over, and there was about 20 of, 20 of us or so in this group, and it's a group that help support the work of contemplative outreach. And uh, every year, at least then, um, someone would um, be present as a presenter at the St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, and we'd have a three-day retreat. And anyway, you gave the presentation. It was wonderful. And I was just kind of full of energy, just didn't know where to go because I wanted to touch everything spirit- spiritually, and Centering Prayer was one of them. But I, I just was uh, restless with um, the pace that things moved at my local chapter. And I remember uh, just sitting there and thinking, this man is so approachable and so personable. I think I could ask him a question, and I think he'd probably, you know, talk to me. And uh, so I pulled you aside and said, can we talk? And I really hoped you would say, you know, we'd schedule a time for later so I could rehearse what I was going to say. And you say, yeah, let's just talk right now. (laughs) And I said, I really like these retreats. You know, Father, the centering prayer thing's okay. Our local chapter's okay. I guess I could just be a little loyal soldier there. But uh, I'd really like these retreats. What should I do? And I really thought you would give me the institutional answer. Well, you know, be a nice loyal soldier. You're kind of young on the and, and new, and a lot, you know, is going on. And uh, just remember, you just look me in the eye. So just go do your own thing, which kind of um, – I wouldn't. I don't think I would have done it without some encouragement and – you know, uh, you were really pivotal to uh, me having the courage to just, okay, I feel called to do this. I'll just do it on my own and see what happens. And I don't know, here we are several years later uh, visiting. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. But I was able to say that to you because I had a sense that you knew what you were talking about, that you knew what Centering Prayer was and that you practiced it. And that you saw a, a need for others to know about it too, and you also knew that you could have the support of the larger contemplative outreach movement. So um, I'm so glad you said yes. I'm so glad I uh, got your wise counsel at the time. Um, let's move a little forward to Thomas Keating. You knew him so well. I think you, I'm pretty sure you presided over one of the. Uh, masses following his uh, death, if, you know, Thomas knew he had just, you know, an hour or two to live and he, you know, then was able to write down a couple things or say a couple words 
for folks to remember? What what would he say? You knew him well. Well, you know, he did say it, and we have him um, videoed of it. It 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 appears in the surrendering to love memorial video that was prepared at the occasion of his uh, and presented at the occasion of his his death. And it was pretty much his when he said, you know, um, uh, I um, uh, this was God's work. I responded to to God's God's call. And that uh, it's not about me and any credit that takes place. It was God working and anything that didn't turn out well, it was pretty, maybe might be me working, but he made a big, he made a big point really of, of owning the fact that it was through the help of God that this was what accomplished in, uh, in um, contemplative outreach and centering prayer was really the work of the spirit. And, and I, I would, if, um, if people can get a chance to see surrendering to God's love, you know, it, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube, uh, the memorial uh, presentation uh, celebrating the life of Thomas Keating. Uh, it would be worth watching. It's just a be- it's yeah. beautifully, beautifully done. Now, let's talk about something that people wouldn't be able to capture on YouTube. Uh, you mentioned before we started, one thing you wanted to talk about is uh, your visit, I guess, in November of last year to Thomas's grave. Uh, was yes. there uh, something around that you wanted to share? Well, it was a beautiful experience. I was invited out to Colorado to do some work in, in Colorado Springs, Um and uh, also to uh, to do a workshop at the at the Contemplative Center in uh, in Denver, but in between I had uh, time off, and one of the uh, members of Contemplative Outreach of uh, of Denver um, uh, was willing to drive me, you know, to uh, the four hour drive to Snowmass, where I met with. Uh, Abbot Charlie, who has taken Abbot Joseph's place. It was so sad that both Joseph and Thomas died at the same time to visit uh, to visit the graves. And um, and uh, while there, um, I I prayed the uh, prayer that uh, Thomas loved, uh, having prayed when he was uh, in the final periods of his life there when at when he was um at uh, Spencer where he was in the infirmary at that time and he the funeral mass was at Spencer in Massachusetts and then there was a mass out at Snow Mass when uh for Thomas and then when uh he died in November that when the ground was probably uh, finally able to receive uh the uh, the his ashes they were planted on the hill along with many of the other monks that uh, were members of Snowmass and uh, are buried there, uh, including uh, Abbot Joseph and also uh, uh, Father Theophane. But the prayer I love to pray there and after anointing anointing the tombstones with uh, with Abbot Charlie. Um, is the prayer of abandonment that Father Thomas uh, had uh, prayed every day in his uh, in his final few months um, 
at at Spencer, and uh, it was the prayer really that my I said with my dad when he was dying, and Thomas said, mm-hmm. "Please pray that with me," and then recommended actually that other the monks each day uh, pray it along with him, and it was this: "I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all." I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with confidence for you are my father. Mm. I think people are going to want to find a copy of that. Did you mention, Carl, where they could go to find that prayer? They can. They can. They can uh, Google it. Uh, it's the okay. prayer of abandonment, and the the author is Charles D. Picole. I'll, I'll spell it. D E capital F O U. C-A-U-L-D. Mm. Charles Difficult. And gonna... you'll find it, you'll, you'll, you'll Google it, and it, it will appear. Okay. Now we're going to impress everybody with our uh, numbers here. Uh, be like a football uh, huddle or something. So 2711, Carl, what about oh. that? <laughs> I tell you, it's one of my favorite paragraphs. Uh, the uh, the Roman Catholic Church and people know I'm a Roman Catholic priest. You know, uh, uh, put together a catechism uh, that's a, a teaching book. You know, from which uh, they gather the uh, essence of what Catholicism is about in, in a simplified form, if you would. Not that simple, and they put it in what they call the catechism, and that was. Back in 1995, that the original came out. Well, there is uh, it covers everything. It covers the uh, the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, and prayer. But 2711 is in the section on prayer. And when I saw this, I said, "My goodness, this is what centering prayer is all about." So let me read it, uh, because it touches me so, okay? Now, Centering Prayer is is acquired contemplation, if you would. And then there is infused contemplation, which is the gift when the Spirit takes over in the prayer. Um, But it is a form of contemplative prayer. So I can say this in, in all honesty. Entering into centering prayer, in the catechism it says contemplative prayer, is like entering into the Eucharistic liturgy. We gather up the heart, recollect our whole being under the promptings of the Holy Spirit, abide in the dwelling place of the Lord, which we are, Awaken our faith in order to enter into the presence of him who awaits us. 
We let our masks fall and turn our hearts back to the Lord who loves us so as to hand ourselves over to him as an offering to be purified and transformed. I love it. It, it talks too. about it talks about it in such a way that you can identify with the beauty of what it means really to sit for 20 minutes consenting to God's presence and action in our lives. And you still sit daily, correct? And you've been doing that for decades. Oh, oh since 1975. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Mm. Tell, um, it's been a, it's, it, it's been a great a great gift in many ways to me. Yeah. I appreciate the gift. Tell the, the listeners about your inner life. Do you have, and obviously a key component is centering prayer, but do you have daily practices that uh, uh, have been helpful to you and you've decided to make them habitual on your journey? Well, um, it so happens with the grace of God, you know, I I have about an hour, including the centering prayer, uh, an hour and a half platform of prayer to launch my daily routine. Um, and because I was on the road so much when I was younger, it was so important that my day starts with this wonderful platform of an opportunity to uh, offer adoration and thanksgiving and sorrow and 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 uh, so on uh, to the Lord to, to kind of like get the day the day going. And so um, there's a pattern of which all the types of prayer, there's vocal prayer, prayers that are made up by other people, if you would. And then there, uh, like the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Rosary, and so on. And then there, then there is a time really for... Um, meditation and that's with the scriptures and then there's time really for for affection in which i express the lord uh, uh, what what i want to express and pray for the people i want to pray for and the things that i need to pray for uh, and then the time just to be uh, quiet with the lord in, in centering prayer so there is this pattern, this discipline, and it's fascinating. St. Ignatius of Loyola says that uh, w- when when you don't want to pray, that's when you should even pray more, for goodness sakes, because this mm-hmm. is an opportunity for some some growth. But the pattern is there. There is the, tr- the traditional prayers. There is the reading of the scriptures. There is the centering prayer, and then there's really time for reflection and so on. There's a this marvelous pattern that I, and I recommend to everybody really to have that type of uh, type of discipline. And discipline isn't a bad word. It means you're getting, you're starting off on the right foot each day by celebrating the the source of your life, your strength, your gifts, and your and your talents. Yes, beautiful. I don't know if this fits or not, Carl. Uh, one of the things we discussed before we started was. Um, Father Simeon, and you wanted to say something about him, but then I don't think we ever got to exactly what it was. But uh, was there something about him that you wanted to add? 
Well, yes, uh, I came, you know, with my reading every day, you know, that I, that I do, um, I come upon sayings that are so important that touch my heart. And what I do is I copy them and then I put them on my iPhone. Uh, my iPhone has, has uh, under um, things to do, you know, mm-hmm. instead of things, What's there are it's not the calendar, it's another little section. I I don't want to interrupt our call by trying to look at for it now, but it's a little, yeah. little section. And and um I think it's maybe it's reminders or something. And I like to put pithy sayings, you know, that I see that I want to spend a little more time on when I have a chance. And um in this month's uh, Magnifica, which is a monthly little prayer book that comes out um, that has the, the readings of the day for the Mass and so on, they have a meditation of the day. And this one happens to be by Brother Simeon, who is a Cistercian monk who is serving the community in, in, in Rome. And he had this one sentence that knocked my socks off. Now here, I'm 85 years old, pre-60 years. I can still find sayings and sentences that will just right, seem to penetrate and capture what, what, what I'm concerned about and I love or believe and so on. So let me share this one sentence with you. He's talking about Jesus. And uh, and uh, he makes the point, of course, really that Jesus is not just one of other, one of many teachers. He is the Son of God, and we shouldn't forget that um, as Christians. But he has this one one sentence: Jesus, and I'm quoting, Jesus is a window to the freedom and vastness of eternity mm. and the entryway into the abyss of God's Trinitarian being. Wow. Mike, it blew my mind. Mm. When I, as I'm getting older, of course, I'm thinking more of eternity because it's not this, the life doesn't end, you know, when you die. And, but it says Jesus is a window to the freedom. Notice that. And vastness of eternity, the awesomeness of this, this, this cosmos, really, of God's presence and so on. Uh, in general, that, that sort of like creates the vastness of it all. And the entry, entryway into the abyss. Now, notice that word abyss, you know, of the abyss of God's Trinitarian being, the being of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in, in, in centering prayer, we talk about that being the essence of what we're consenting to, God's presence. And God's presence is, could be said, is this abyss of God's Trinitarian being, something greater than ourselves, bigger than ourselves, more loving than ourselves, actually, that we, are, we enter, enter into. But the point is we don't enter into it. We're already there. We wake up to the fact that we are there. So, yeah. Thank you for letting me share it because these are these are the things that keep me going. You know these yeah. little these little sayings, these little good news pellets that come into the world of uh, of not such good news. Uh, 
that keep you going that there's something more than meets the eye. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, three important questions that you've always asked. Uh, and I got to remind myself if I have this correct or not. What needs to be no. healed? No. Right. Yeah. What needs to yeah. Be I, this, no. Right. And what needs to uh, be and celebrated? What needs to be celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. But then I wonder yeah, if we well. can combine those with these three important questions that came up during your cancer treatment. Who are we when we're not working? Who are we when we are left on our own? Who are we when we are not feeling well? Should we talk about the three separately, or is it worth combining? No, I think it's good combining it. I, I, I find that uh, I've always been moved by... Uh, by the spirit, if you would, to in all my uh, workshops and all my liturgies, if you would, to uh, always somewhere along the line, really somewhere along the line, to be able to say, "Remember now, let's let us pause a moment." You know, uh, as a result of our day together, uh, what did you become aware of that needs to be healed? as a result of our day together, you know, because it would be on retreat, uh, what have you become aware of that needs to be forgiven? And as a result of our time together, what needs to be celebrated more in our lives? And I find in many, many ways what happens actually is that that, uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about what needs to be healed, and rightly so, and what needs to be forgiven, and rightly so. But we never think about what needs to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. That in the middle of all the things we struggle with, with healing and forgiveness, which are keys to freedom, really, that we don't realize that this is in a, a wrapper, if you would, of a lot of things to be celebrated that are going on uh, in spite of us, my mother used to say, you know, I'm doing the best I can, you know, uh, uh, in spite of you, you know, so that, that, um, that, uh, that it's going on around us in spite of us. And that reminds me of my, my teacher in the second grade who went to the blackboard and put a chalk mark on the blackboard. And, and she said to us, second graders, she said, class, class, uh, boys and girls, what do you see? And all of us, of course, were so thrilled we could see the the, the, the little uh, chalk mark. And then she said something that I have never forgotten, and that was almost 80 years ago. Um, doesn't anyone see the blackboard? And so in everything we do, in our healing and our forgiveness and so on, we need to celebrate all these other things that are supporting our little chalk mark, our little existence. So that when, so that I found, you know, that when I got, was sick with the cancer and so on, uh, 44 treatments, you know, over uh, six weeks or uh, for prostate, but everything's fine. And that's why I was delayed in coming you know, to to uh, Kansas right. City. Yeah, we weren't able to do it. I was a little too weak from the, the cancer treatments. Um, but it, it came to mind during that time, you know, 
when we're not, uh, I asked myself these three questions that came to me. Who is Carl Arrico when he's not working? Who is Carl Arrico when he's left on his own? Mm. Who is Carl Arrico when he is not feeling well? Mm. And those are moments, I think, that are very important. Who are we when we're not working is 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 a very important point because in a certain sense, now we have the time to put in the time on the important things we want to do. And I mm-hmm. think the pandemic for many people was an opportunity to take advantage of the time. You know, um, who are we, you know, when we're left on our own? Our old spiritual director used to say to us, you know, don't complain about uh, being too busy because there'll come a time in your life when nobody will call. Celebrate your busyness because there are memories later on when the incentive or the um, inspiration of others' calls aren't there for you. And then the last one, of course, is who are we? when we're not feeling too too well. And it's amazing when things aren't functioning, when you can't see, you can't taste, you can't sleep, um, all of a sudden you begin to realize how many things you've taken for granted. Mm. Mm. Well, so 85. they're just, yeah. I'm 85. Yep. 86, I'll be 86 in August. Yeah. But same question to you that we you kind of were able to answer for Thomas Keating. If you knew this was going to be your last chance to, to speak to a large group of people, um, and they kind of just wanted to know uh, the culmination of 85-ish, 86-ish years of wisdom and time on the journey, what would you want them to remember? Well, Mike, there's a lot of things I could say. Um, I would say trust the process. Trust is the most important thing. You know, we are we're, we our faith is pretty good for the most part. Our hope is very strong. Our charity grows, but trusting is the key point. Here's what I think I was trying to transition to because I'm also fascinated and and I'm reminded that you and Thomas did so much work on dying. I can't remember what you called the series, the gift of dying or something, but you know, the gift having, of life. Gift of life. Okay, having seen so many of your priest friends and and other friends pass, seeing Thomas and Joe Boyle, just to name a two, pass. Uh, to name two folks that um, have passed and you going through these cancer treatments. What, what, what's your sense now of the abyss and the window and the entryway and all? What's your sense of death uh, at this point in your journey? Um, let me put it this way. In this final part of my life, you know, I... I, I um, There's, there's, um, 
Do we have time? Because uh, there's, I'm thinking of saying a little more here than uh, well, than you, the question. You, we have nothing but time, Carl. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Go ahead and, and say and, whatever you want to say. Okay. All righty. You know, Mike, in looking at my life, uh, because you have to look at life as part of the context of death, um, I saw different stages in my in my life, especially as a priest. And and um, if I could sum them up, it would be this way, you know, to to pray and to trust, hmm. to love and to mend, to be available and to let go, to die to new life. So in this final phase of my life, I see this as a dying, really, to, to, new, to new life. And um, how I will be at the moment, really, of my death, I don't know what my emotional reaction will be to this. Um, but in, what really moves me is the fact, actually, that it's moving towards new life. Mm. And as I diminish in my old age, and there, that's diminishment. Um, it's a diminishment of letting go of the things that I hold on to in order to be more open to receive the things that are yet yet to come. So I, I will say to people, really, that uh, uh, the more you can embrace your dying, the greater will be your life. Mm. Beautiful. Let me ask you about uh, the church, the Roman Catholic Church that you've devoted your whole life to. Speaking of dying and speaking of new life, some see some see signs of death. You know, deep declining attendance, parishes clo- closing, um, very few people under thirty uh, attending. What, uh, what what do you see? Do you worry about the future of the church? Well, I pray for the future of the church, you know. My worry isn't going to help one way or, or the other, uh, but my praying for the future of the church. And one of my favorite subjects, you know, and this is not a cop-out, but one of my favorite subjects in, 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 in school has always been history, world history, church history, any history. I find it fascinating to know what went on before and what is going on now because our, our history professor in the seminary, Monsignor Beck, always said, you'll understand today with when you have a greater understanding of yesterday. And uh, the one thing that I've seen is this, that the Roman Catholic Church, for all its uh, strengths and weaknesses, has been around for 2,000 years. Everybody's tried to undermine the church, uh, all sorts of different groups. We won't go into the the different groups and so on, but the church has never always been free of her enemies as such. Um, but it's still here. And so I truly believe we're going through a phase. Um, there's t- sometimes when you plant and sometimes when you don't plant and grow and you don't grow and so on. But with every one of these pr- procedures, if you were, any, every one of these moments, actually, what happens, actually, some new life is popping up in some other place or 
places that we haven't realized yet. And so I, I, I have great, great trust, you know, uh, and a, a, certainly a, de- a tremendous love for um, Pope Francis and especially his little comment of saying to to the priest, you know, you need to have the smell of your of the lambs of the sheep on you. Um, that that uh, I'm very hopeful, and and I know it will be around a long time, and I'm proud of being a member of it. Mm. Well, I'm uh, thankful for our time. I'm thankful for knowing you, Carl Rico, and you're uh, just being able to experience your peace and wisdom and, and graciousness and we had a fun exchange over the weekend when you were here. We, uh, Anna and I and you had dinner at season 52. And I just remember how, uh, funny you found those, you know, there's fountains all over Kansas city, but, uh, during football season, we cover them with, uh, jerseys from different key players. And, uh, <laughs> not only did you have a picture, uh, and we sent you a picture this weekend with the same fountain with a, a Royals jersey on it. But, uh, we talked a couple months ago, and you just remembered that like it was yesterday. But uh, that was, uh, I think, the beginning of football season. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, 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 I know. I, I'm taking. I, I, I was happy that they won. I was happy that they won, and it was a pleasure to see it. You know, and to know that I was in town the year before it happened, so there was a nice collection. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Uh, been a pleasure spending time with you. Probably held you over a little bit. Sorry for that. But um, until we uh, meet again, huh? Yes, sir. Thank you, Carl. And trust, trust, trust the process. <laughs>